Welcome to episode 42 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, spark the fire episode. Fire has met its match. Learn five ways to light a fire that you may not have heard of before. Then, on the Summit Gear Review, my obsession with stoves is fueled with a piece of gear that not only burns sticks, but burns smoke as well. On the Backpack Hack of the Week, learn how to make a cotton ball into a char puff that can be the slow-burning nucleus for the perfect fire. Then we'll leave you with a little trail wisdom from a man of few words. Six words to be exact. All this and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. So what is it about fire that is so magical, that so you just pulls you in and you can't stop watching the fire? It's just so uh, alive. It is alive. Or at least it feels like it. You can sit there by a campfire and just stare into the flames all night. I might get bored of a TV show or a movie, but for some reason, the fire is just almost hypnotizing. That's exactly the word. I think the ability to control fire is one of those uniquely human traits. There's something to that, too. Like, a fire happens naturally sometimes, but none of the other animals can control a fire. It just happens, and that's the way it goes. But we, as humans, have this unique ability to control a fire and put it to use for our purposes. The other animals do way better than us at finding food, at leaving no trace, uh, you know, all these other things that we try to do when we're out backpacking. So fire is like our thing. It's our thing, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think it has equal ability to destroy and to sustain life. It's just one of those things. It can go either way, which I guess is maybe another reason why it's so exciting. We took a trip last month to the Tillamook State Forest. They have a forest center there that's free to visit where you can learn about the effects that fire had back in the 1900s in that area in Oregon. There was a series of four major fires over three decades, and it's called the Tillamook Burn. The first one started in August of 1933. It was started by a logging operation, and it burned over 300,000 acres of old-growth forest. And then just a few years later, in 1939, another fire started by a logging operation burned much of the same area. It was 190,000 acres. In 1945, two fires started that burned 180,000 acres. One of them was started by a cigarette, and the other, they're not sure, but they think it was a Japanese incendiary balloon. So it was an attack by the Japanese to try to burn the forest. Wow. Yeah, it'd be fun to, to see if that could ever be proved one way or the other, but that's the speculation. I wonder if that's ever been used anywhere else in the United States. I know it was attempted several times by the Japanese during the war here on the Oregon coast, but I'm not sure if they tried it anywhere else. But it makes sense they would try it here. Oregon has the most trees in all of the U.S. Finally, in 1951, uh, a smaller fire burned 33,000 acres. All total over that couple of decades, uh, it was 
over 350,000 acres of timber that burned in the Tillamook burn. We also learned that 90% of wildfires are human-caused. It may be from a carelessly tossed out cigarette. It may be from a campfire that was not put out completely. It may be intentional acts of arson. Only 10% of wildfires are naturally caused. To me, that was a stunning statistic. I would have probably gone the other way around. You know, like most of them are caused by lightning or careless chipmunks carrying lighters, but about 90% of forest fires can be prevented. That's amazing. So there's one more natural cause, and we'll tell you that natural cause at the end of the show. So lightning is obvious, but what else is it? What's the other natural cause of wildfires? Well, for today's top five list, we have the top five impressive ways to light a fire. Now, no one gets all excited when you pull out a box of matches and start a fire, but when you pull out one of these tools to get your blaze started, you are guaranteed to get some attention. When I was in Scouts, there was one evening that uh, we had kind of a special Scout meeting at our Scoutmaster's house and did several outdoor things. I think we had some pioneering going on, lashings and knots. And one of the demonstrations I was in charge of, and it was lighting a fire without matches. And so uh, I got my tinder set up, used my flint and steel to strike it up, and uh, within moments I had my fire going. Well, our scoutmaster thought that this was going to take a while, and so he'd gone into his house to get a camera or something. You know, he's going to document this this demonstration of like this arduous process of starting a fire without matches. And by the time he got back out, the fire was at full size, <laughs> completely started. He'd missed the whole thing, and that was impressive. But you've come up with five ways to start a fire that are even more impressive. <laughs> than my classic flint and steel approach. I don't know if more impressed. I'm impressed. That's pretty cool. Some of these methods that you've come up with for today, I had never heard of before. Yeah, They just blew me away. They're new to me too. Um, when I was in ninth grade, I had a friend who uh, went off to one of those wilderness camps and, um, you know, she spent a month or two there learning how to skin rabbits and start fires and stuff. And it was a really kind of intense experience. And she came back changed. She was amazing. She, um, she showed us how to start a fire with a bow drill and she actually did it. She had the skills. That was how she survived out there and cooked her rabbit. Wow, and I've never successfully started a fire with a bow drill. In fact, that's not one of the five on your list. It's impressive if you succeed, but it takes a really long time. And so you've come up with five fire starting methods that not only are they really impressive, but they're fast. Yeah, so let's start with number one. This is the one when I first heard about it, I was like, I've never, I'm nearly 40 years old and I've never heard of this method of fire making before. So this is the fire piston and it's a rod with a small piece of char cloth attached to the end or kind of, you know, stuffed into the end and it slips tightly into a shaft. When you quickly push the piston into the shaft, the pressurized air inside of the shaft raises the temperature so rapidly that the char cloth inside actually creates or turns into an ember. 
So for your diesel mechanics out there, this is the principle of a diesel engine. It has such a high compression ratio that the diesel spontaneously ignites at the top of the compression stroke. And I had no idea you could start a fire this way just using your hands. It's amazing. You just, you whack it and it shoves it so fast down into the cylinder that it creates that same intense heat that you'd have in a diesel engine and ignites your char cloth. So after you whack it, you pull out this rod and you'll see a tiny little ember at the end of the rod. It's really a fascinating way to start a fire. So then after you have that tiny little ember, that's when you would carefully put the ember in some kind of fire starting material like some dried grass or or cotton ball with Vaseline or something like that. If you're interested in looking into fire pistons, Numith makes a fire piston. It's the Numith Vulcan Fire Piston V2. We haven't tested it out, but you can definitely go check it out. We will have the link in the show notes. And there's also quite a few videos online where people show how to make your own fire piston. So if you want to take a whack at it yourself, go for it. The number two impressive way to light a fire is with something called the Everstrike Match. Now this combines two really great ideas, and that is kind of the flint and steel idea along with a wick that's been soaked in butane. So it's this little piece of gear about the size of a matchbox, and um, there's a ferro rod with a wick on it that's dipped in butane, and when you strike that ferro rod, The spark, the wick, and the butane all light up, and it gives you this little pseudo-match. It kind of even looks like a little metal match. It's definitely way cooler than scratching wood against a box. So that's the Everstrike match, and that's spelled ever, and then strike is with a Y. Everstrike match. And you can check out the link to the Everstrike match on our show notes. And the show notes for this episode are thefirst40miles.com slash 042. The third impressive way to start a fire is with a magnifying glass. Now, any kid of ours who shall remain nameless, (laughs) who has ever melted a hole in a trampoline, knows the power of a magnifying glass for starting fire. His grandpa showed him this trick of how a magnifying glass can be used to uh, concentrate the sunlight on something and start it on fire. And he thought that was a cool trick. So he spent some time out on the trampoline. It did kind of melt some precarious holes. So the advantage of the magnifying glass method is that it relies on skills that you developed as a seven-year-old in your backyard. Super easy. Just aim it at something that's going to burn and uh, wait a minute and you're ready to go. The con, of course, is that you need intense sunlight. So on that snowy or rainy, super cold camping trip where you really need a fire, ah, sorry, you're, you're out of luck with this method. Still, it's very impressive, and I think it would be fun, actually, to get your children to try this method on the trail. Just take the magnifying glasses away from them when you get back home. The number four impressive way to light a fire is with your cell phone battery and steel wool. Now, this is kind of a riff on the classic 9-volt battery and steel wool method of starting fire, but most of us don't bring 9-volt batteries on the trail. 
but most of us do, most of the time, carry a cell phone in our pocket. So all you have to do is pack some really ultra light steel wool, take out your cell phone battery and put the two together. This is something you definitely wanna try at home first because you have to make sure that you have the right kind of contacts at the end of your cell phone battery. Even if your cell phone says that your battery is dead, it may have enough power left to do this trick. And if you've never watched steel wool burn, it is the coolest thing. It's like, I don't know, some science fiction-y looking organism. Like it kind of just burns like little worms crawling around. I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's really fun to watch. And any grade of steel wool will work. You can just pick up a package, a pretty large package at the dollar store, and uh, then just take the size that you need on the trail. If you are completely desperate for fire, I have another recommendation. Actually, it's not a recommendation. It's a non-recommendation. <laughs> but I saw a video of someone hitting a cell phone battery until it exploded. Terrible idea. Don't do that. But if that's the only way to start a fire, wouldn't you do that, Josh? Like, Well, there's no doubt it's impressive. It, it, it would leave an impression on me. Um, I, I'm not going to try it. Okay. We do not recommend this method. Try the steel wool method instead. Well, the number five impressive way to start a fire is another one that I had never seen before. And in fact, I could not believe it until I saw it. The number five impressive way to light a fire is with the Soto pocket torch. Soto's slogan is sparked by nature. I loved that. The Soto pocket torch, it puts out a super fine blue flame that reaches 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a windproof flame. And what you do is you put just your regular Scripto super cheap lighter inside of this pocket torch close the lid and push the button and it puts out this tiny blue flame that's super hot. I still don't know how the Soto pocket torch works. I mean, it's basically just an enclosure for a disposable lighter. So you stick the lighter inside, so obviously the lighter is the fuel source. And then you push the button on the torch and you get this blue flame coming out. There's no modifications to the lighter and you just stick it in. It's amazing. <laughs> The Soto Pocket Torch is 1.8 ounces, and then you just add on to that the weight of your little Scripto lighter or whatever you put inside. It does have some limitations. It may not work to full capacity at 5,000 feet elevation or above, and it also has trouble working at low temperatures. But still, it's a really cool tool and a great way to start a fast fire, especially if you have lots of wet stuff. This could actually dry out a lot of the wet stuff. And as with any method of fire starting, they all have their limitations. So always bring a backup. That redundancy, especially in the fire department, is very important. With all five of these super impressive methods that we've shared, that means you've got lots of options for what that backup method is going to be. So you might bring your lighter and then any one of these five and of course, you might end up using one of these five more because it's just so much more exciting. You'll definitely get attention. These are, uh, these are fun ways to start a fire. So in this top five list, we've really focused on the top five impressive ways to light a fire. But if you want to keep the fire going, there are a couple things that we wanted to share that we thought were really fun. The first thing is Fire Cord, and it's put out by a company called Live Fire. 
and it's 550 paracord, but it has a strand of waterproof cord inside that's a fire starter. So if you open up the fire cord, you'll see all those white strands that paracord usually has inside of it. But then there's one strand of red cord that burns really well, and that's your fire starter that you can use in an emergency. The other thing that Live Fire makes is a product called Live Fire, and it's a little tiny tin, and all you have to do is fluff up the stuff inside of the tin with your fingernail, and it will take and hold a spark until it yells uncle. It is amazing stuff. And then if you want to extinguish the fire, you just close the lid, and it lasts a long time. It's lightweight. It's a just a really nice way to have fire starting material packaged. It's all in this little tin, and you won't have any problem with messes in your pack. So it's a real convenience on the trail. So there are two more things for you to look at there, the fire cord and the live fire. For today's Summit Gear Review, we're reviewing the Solo Stove. The Solo Stove is an inverted down gas gasifier stove or a secondary combustion stove. And it's similar to the Emberlit Fire Ant, which we just reviewed, as it also relies on forest debris as its primary fuel source. If you want to catch the review for the Emberlit stove, just go back to last week's episode, uh, number 41, or check out the show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 041. The Solo stove is made of stainless steel, and inside there's a layer of nichrome wire that uh, kind of your sticks all fit into. And this stove is actually structurally different from the Emberlit Fire Ant in that it's not something that compresses down. It's actually about the size of a maybe a quart paint can, about that size. While you do assemble it some before you use it, you take out the pot holder inside of the stove and you flip it upside down and that raises up your pot. It's not something that breaks down flat. So it takes up some space in your pack, but it does something that the Emberlit Fire Ant doesn't. It actually gives you a secondary burn, which is why this stove is called a secondary combustion stove. So if you look inside the stove, you'll see some holes. And if you look outside the stove, you'll see some holes. And while I can't quite explain the science behind it, something about those holes pulls the smoke downward and lets it come back up through those chambers and burn again as it comes up back over the flame. The result is that you get a fire coming out of this stove that's virtually smokeless. So however they achieved that, they did it. It works. And it all works just using forest debris. I love that. You don't have to chop down logs. You just pick up the sticks around your tent or the pine cones or pine needles, whatever you use, and you feed it through the side, has a little opening in the side, or through the top. It really doesn't matter where you put the sticks. And you can use basically anything off of the forest floor. It takes about 8 to 10 minutes to boil 4 cups of water. So, I mean, it's, it's not your jet boil, but you don't have to carry fuel, which I think is just a beautiful thing. It can fit any size pot. And one of the nice things about the Solo stove is you can actually buy a separate pot from the one you typically carry that the stove nestles perfectly into. And so there's, there's a way to cut down on a little bit of bulk. And of course, if you wanted to throw your matches and fire starting stuff into the stove, that's another way to use up that empty space inside. 
So you can do some creative things to make use of that, that space there. The stove is 3.8 inches tall and 4.25 inches wide, and it weighs nine ounces. And that's without fuel. I mean, that if you are really trying to cut your weight, then this is a great way to do it. As far as maintenance goes, after you use this stove, you are definitely going to want to let it cool. The whole stove gets hot while it's cooking, and it takes a little while for it to cool down. Once it's finally cooled, then you want to make sure that you empty out all of the ashes and um, possible embers that are still in there. Because you're just burning sticks and twigs and pine cones, you're not going to have any long-lasting embers, so you don't really have to worry about that. But whatever you do dump out, make sure that you saturate that with water so that if there are any little stray embers, you're not going to be you know, stepping on it or causing an uncontrolled burn outside of your tent. When you're done emptying it out, just store it in the stuff sack. That really prevents your gear from getting all sooty. We did say that uh, this stove has that secondary burn, so a lot of the smoke actually gets ignited, reburned. And so this stove is a lot cleaner than if you were just putting a pot on top of a campfire. It's going to cause way less soot than that would, but you're still going to have some soot build up on, on your pot. And so, you know, you don't want that rubbing off on other things in your pack. Well, especially the way that I build fires. As I was experimenting with this stove, I was making a lot of smoky fires. So you still you still have to make sure that you give all your wood a chance to breathe. One of the things that causes smoke in the solo stove is cramming too much wood inside of it. And that was what caused a lot of smoke when I was using it. And then when I kind of backed off and added less twigs and kind of let those burn and then added a few more slowly, then it was a really clean burn. So if you are getting a lot of smoke, then just pull back on the amount of fuel that you're using in there. When you cram too much wood into the stove, it becomes oxygen deprived. And so you get an incomplete burn where you get lots of carbon that's not mixing with enough oxygen. When there's enough oxygen, you get carbon dioxide, which is just a gas. But when there's not enough oxygen, you get carbon, you get hydrocarbons, and that's the black stuff. For investment, this stove costs $69.99, and you also get to factor in the fact that you will never pay for fuel again, which is a really cool feature of this stove. As I was reading some reviews online and testing out the stove, I I realized that this may be the only stove out there that has a cult following. I mean, really, read the reviews, and they will restore your faith in humanity and make you smile. Just people who gush about this stove, and I had a similar experience. I really enjoyed the idea of being able to cook things as long as I want to and not have that fear that I'm going to run out of fuel. We used it on a recent trip down to the coast, and we just loved it. It was great to be able to cook food. And you know how kids are. They just eat all the time. So we would cook up a batch of oatmeal and then, you know, someone 10 minutes later would be like, uh, is there any more oatmeal left? <laughs> so I'd start up the stove again and uh, get the solo stove going. It was fantastic. Really great, easy to use and really simple cleanup and simple storage. The only downside to this stove, and this is one that I am really disappointed about, is that if fires are banned in the area that you're backpacking in, this stove is going to have to stay home. 
the area that we're going to be going to next, there's a, a campfire ban and an open fire ban, but you can take butane stoves or propane stoves. Almost always when there's a fire ban, that includes all wood-burning stoves. And so the solo stove, the ember lit, those are out. can't use them. Uh, during a fire ban, usually you can still bring your, uh, your gas stoves. It'd have to be really severe for them to put a ban on gas stoves. If you want water boiling guaranteed in two minutes, bring a jet boil, push a button, two minutes later, the water's boiling. If you like to have a little more fun with your cooking and it's fun to kind of, you know, sit around the stove and wait for that water to boil and, and know that you're not carrying any fuel, you're just using what's available around your tent and, uh, and you're super lightweight because you're not carrying fuel, you just have the stove and the pot, then the solo stove is just a really cool way to go. And if you want to look up the technology behind it, just do a search for inverted down gas gasifier stove or a secondary combustion stove. And you may even be able to find plans online for how to make your own. That's if you're a DIY kind of guy or gal. But otherwise, the Solo stove is built really well. It's well designed. And uh, I haven't heard any chatter from the people at Solo Stove as to whether they're making a titanium version or not. But I'm sure that's in the works. Well, should we move on to the backpack hack of the week? Sounds good. Back in episode 21, we went through the top five uses of a cotton bandana. And one of those uses was to make char cloth. So today's backpack hack of the week is char cloth. So what you'll need to do to create your own char cloth or char puffs is a cleaned out tuna can and preferably one that's been opened with, uh, you know, one of those special can openers that cuts it on the side so you can put the lid right back on instead of the ones that cut it on the top and leave you with those sharp blades. So you want to be able to put the tuna can lid back on the tuna can. Once you get the lid off, you'll want to, well, eat the tuna and rinse it out, all that stuff, but then poke a hole in the lid of the tuna can with a hammer and a nail. And then you'll want to put maybe six to eight cotton balls in the tuna can or a few pieces of an old bandana, old underwear, whatever you can find that's cotton. And then you want to set that tuna can with the lid on top of your backpacking stove and then turn on your backpacking stove. And as the stove burns underneath the tuna can, you will probably see flames coming from that hole in the tuna can. And when the flames stop, then you can open up the lid and see your white cotton balls or your white pieces of cotton have turned completely black, but they're not going to be brittle. That's kind of the, the sign that you're looking for. You don't actually want to burn the cotton balls and the cotton fabric. You just want to suck all of the stuff that burns quickly out so that the stuff that burns slowly is left behind. So what happens is all of the impurities, they sort of come out. You know, they, they evaporate out and it leaves only the stuff that would burn if there was oxygen. And so you've got this super powerful piece of material that contains only combustible stuff. So the cotton balls or the cotton fabric will be a little bit smaller. They'll still be pliable. They'll still, you know, kind of look like the shape that they're supposed to. But the cool thing about them is they will take a spark 
really well and they'll burn a lot more slowly and that allows you to start your fire if you're going to do the old-fashioned method. And so the place that you can use this the best is actually if you're going to be using something like flint and steel or if you're going to be using a uh, fire piston. Both of those methods you'll need to use a little bit of char cloth or a char puff it will kind of burn similar to the way that steel wool does, really slow and um, you'll want to feed it with just a little bit of oxygen to blow on it really gently. So to recap this hack, we're going to take a tuna can or I mean a cat food can, anything about that size with a cleanly cut lid so that you can put the lid back on. You want to poke one hole in the top, maybe the size of a nail, uh, just big enough to kind of let the gases out. And then you put your pieces of cotton in, put it on your camp stove, get it all heated up. You'll see a little bit of flame coming out. When the flame is done coming out, you know that you're finished. At that point, you probably want to let it cool down a while before you touch it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then take the lid off and you've got your char cloth or your char puffs. So invitation for our listeners, go do that when you get home from work and then use one of those top five impressive fire starting methods that we used with your char puffs. Excellent. Sounds like fun. The evening is planned out. <laughs> well, cool. We have the answer to today's quiz. 90% of forest fires are human caused. 10% are naturally caused. And we know of that 10%, Lightning is one of the causes, but there is a second cause from that 10% of natural causes that is not a chipmunk running around with a big lighter. It is... Lava. Hot lava. That's cause number two. Lightning and lava. And that's it. We tried to come up with, like, what if a mountain goat is walking on a cliff and a rock falls and it <laughs> hits another rock and creates a spark... It, we couldn't come up with another cause. But anyway, this is from the National Park Service. They say lightning and lava, no goats, no squirrels, no clever bears or anything like that. But if we find another cause, we'll let you know. You know, like if the sun gets too close to the earth or something, I guess that would... Meteors. <laughs> Do meteors cause fires? Meteors. Oh. Meteorites. Okay. fall all the way to the ground. We're going to have to call the National Park Service and let them know. We just thought of another natural cause yes. of fires. Well, we'll leave you with a little trail wisdom today from our good friend, Smokey Bear. He said, only you can prevent forest fires. Oh, come on. Say it like a bear. Say it like Smokey would say it. Only you can prevent forest fires. Excellent. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or review us on iTunes. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. They could burn holes in the swing set. Oh, stop. <laughs> Don't get the ideas. That's terrible. Oh, whoops. Okay. I'm cutting all of that out. <laughs> We're going to have burned swing sets all across America's playgrounds.